sweetest day yesterday. Did you get something nice? Yeah. I remembered this year, so that was pretty cool. And my wife isn't really big on flowers and candy or on big talk. She's not a big talker, and she's really not impressed with big talk, which is kind of a bummer for me. So I took her out and bought her a few antiques yesterday. Just the old junk. Made her happy. It's his. It made her happy. We, and we came home. Actually, what else made her happy, there was a certain football game going on, and I missed part of that because she's sweeter than football to me. Um, and when we got back, she said something that made me feel happy. She said, this was a good, sweetest day. And I thought, okay. Every once in a while, I do something right. That's kind of cool. Lois is not uh, big about flowery words. Now, years ago, I told you this before, it's a favorite, so I, I repeat it. Years ago, I, I was driving the Amish, um, and we were going, taking them to a conference of Van Lode Amish friends to a conference. These are sweet, uh, devoted, evangelical Christian Amish friends. They really knew the Lord, and still do. And I was driving up to this conference, and I didn't have any money. Uh, but I said to Lois, I don't worry about it. I, I, she said, you got any money for lunch? I said, no, I, I don't, but I'm not going to worry about it. I said, it's a conference, and I'll want to concentrate. And at lunchtime, I'll just, like, fast, and I'll just not eat, and I'll go and I'll, I'll pray. And, and so when lunchtime came, though, the crazy Amish people, they got, like, baskets of chicken and all kinds of food, and, and they, they started spreading out on the grounds of this church, and they started opening up their baskets and getting their fried chicken out, and any one of them would have fed me, I'm sure, but I, I just didn't want to ask them, so I was sitting there in a van just looking at all these Amish people eating all this food and just thinking, this is torture, and so I left, and I went to a bookstore, and so I was walking around, I was supposed to be fasting and praying and being all spiritual, but I, I was just kind of crow- cruising around a bookstore, and I was in a bookstore for five or ten minutes when I felt this little feminine hand on my back. And uh, we were like an hour from where we lived, and it was Lois. And I turned around and said, what are you doing here? And she said, I got some money, and I knew you would be hungry. And I thought it was pretty cool. She's not big about flowery words, but she can't stand to see me go hungry, so I think that must mean I think she loves me. And I always thought it was kind of cool. She knew exactly where I would be. She, She just drove right to the bookstore and found me right there. I thought that's pretty cool. If Jesus was hungry, would you care? If Jesus was hungry, would it eat at your insides? If Jesus wanted something really bad, would you want to give it to him? Interesting story today that we find ourselves in in Matthew chapter 21 in verses 18 through 27. There are three sections here. In the first section... Jesus is going to curse. He's going to curse a fig tree because he, the, the fig tree has leaves. He expects it to have figs, but it doesn't, and he curses the fig tree. It actually doesn't, it doesn't, not apparent in Matthew, but if you look in the other Gospels, you can see this actually happened over a two-day period of time. He curses it one day, and the disciples notice it the next day as he's coming back in town. In this week we call Holy Week, the last week of his life. In the first section, he curses the fig tree. He withers the fig tree. Then in the next section that you're going to see right there, and that would be like uh, verses 18 and 19. The next section, verses 20 through 22, he gives the disciples a lesson. He challenges his disciples. The, The cursing of the fig tree is symbolic. 
It wasn't just about figs. It was symbolic. It was freighted, heavy with symbolism. And I'll explain that in a little bit. But what was interesting was that the, 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 the fig tree is symbolic of Israel, but the lesson isn't so much to Israel. The lesson that Jesus teaches is to His disciples. So in the first section, he curses the fig tree. But in the second section, he challenges his disciples. He teaches them something. And these are things he still wants all of his disciples to know. And then he silences his critics, which is really fun. Jesus has these critics that are following him around, picking at everything that he does. And he brilliantly silences his critics and establishes his authority. This is what he does. These are three sections that we're going to cover today. And then after those are over, what happens is Jesus tells three stories. And after the three stories that Jesus tells, we're not going to talk about all this today. After the three stories that Jesus tells to make a very specific point, he then has a really uh, a series of four confrontations with religious leaders or with Hellenists or with Sadducees or with Pharisees. He has four heated confrontations it's like things are coming to a boiling point and he's doing it on purpose and then in chapter 23 that goes through chapter 21 and chapter 22 the three stories spill over into chapter 22 the four confrontations are in chapter 22 and then in chapter 23 jesus just opens it up against the religious establishment of the day and he condemns them in the most powerful terms in the most direct terms he is not gentle with these people so it's a really fascinating section that we're getting into here in Matthew 21, 22, and 23. And then after that, Matthew 24, 25, it's called the Olivet Discourse. We get to talk about things to come because his disciples realize the future significance of all the things that Jesus is saying. So they ask some specific questions like, when is this future thing going to happen? This is really interesting stuff. All of this climaxes in Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, and then the book ends with him charging his disciples to go out on a mission, on the mission of Jesus to make more disciples. And we're still on that mission. And the book of Acts says these are the things that Jesus both began to do and teach. It's like he's still working today, and he still has a mission, and he still has lessons he wants to teach his disciples. He's still hungry. Are you interested in feeding him? He comes across this fig tree, and the fig tree is in the spring of the year. And the figs aren't supposed to really come on the tree until later. In Mark it says specifically it wasn't the time for figs. But Jesus was upset because there were no figs. Was that like a question when you read it? Did you think, hmm, you read this ahead, right? Was that a question when you read it? You thought, why would Jesus be upset if it wasn't time for figs? And I will explain this. In the spring of the year, there would be like an early fig harvest on these trees. Just a tiny bit of figs that would often come. And if the leaves came on the tree, you know the figs had already come because the, 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 the little figs in the spring would come before the leaves would come. So if he came on a tree and it was all leafed out in the spring of the year and this was by the wayside, then he would assume that it had those early figs on it and then he could have, almost like eating green apples, he could have some of those early figs. But then when he got up close and he, dis, he, he examined the fig tree, what was it? It was just a bunch of leaves now, what's really interesting about this is, you know, everything he does is just sort of heavily freighted with significance. Jesus doesn't waste words. He doesn't do things that don't mean things. Matthew doesn't, Matthew and the Holy Spirit, when they wrote the book of Matthew, they didn't include things in the book that didn't have any meaning. This has some very specific meaning. Now, one of the things that you see is the meaning is given there in the second section where he's charging his disciples 
challenging them. He's saying to them, they're shocked that when he cursed the fig tree, they came back the next day and it was withered. They're like, whoa, <laughs> whoa. They're like, Peter was the one who noticed it first or mentioned it. It says that in Mark. Peter brings it up. He goes, whoa, it was. You really did do that. And then Jesus is saying in that section, don't be surprised that when I say things are going to happen, they're going to happen. And you don't be surprised when you say things should happen and you pray and you ask for bold things from the Lord if He doesn't do them. But that, so that's an obvious lesson and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But there's another lesson. It's just a little bit more subtle. It's a little bit embedded in the whole narrative here. What has Jesus done? He's gone in. He curses the fig tree. He goes into town. He cleanses the temple. He goes back, comes in the next morning points out that the fig tree is cursed. And in the Old Testament, the fig tree was symbolic of Israel and Israel's religious leadership. And the people that had a knowledge of the Old Testament would have known that. And we, and we don't have to guess about that because a little bit later on, Jesus is going to tell a story. In verse 43, you see that he actually says, you know, Israel, you're like, a, you're like don't have figs. Look in verse 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. What has happened is that Jesus wants the religious leaders to make him known to the people because he's God after all. He's the Messiah. He's what they're all supposed to be. The temple is supposed to be about the Messiah. The sacrifices are supposed to be about Jesus. God is going to show up in His temple. And they're ignoring Him. They're not telling the people about Him. So He's going to take the religious power away from them. And within 40 years, this place is going down in the most profound way. It's literally going to be destroyed in AD 70 by, by the providence of God through the Roman armies under Titus. And it's a horrible thing. You go to Israel today, you go to the Temple Mount, and you look down beside the Temple Mount, you actually still see the original stones of the Temple that were cast down, exactly like Jesus said they were going to be cast down, not one stone remaining on top of another. This was an accurate, fulfilled prophecy. Jesus is going to say, your religious dominance is going to die. It's going to wither away. I'm going to take it away from you. Now, don't, don't misunderstand Jesus is not done with the Jewish nation. He's not done with Israel. He's still not done with Israel today. He's still going to use Israel again. But that generation of people who rejected him were like trees that had all kinds of leaves but no fruit. People that had all kinds of profession but no fruit, no reality in their life. No produce of God in their life. Just a lot of religious talk. Just a lot of traditional things that they did. Just a lot of bickering over extra-biblical things. They were masters at bickering over things that weren't in the Bible. This is what they were good at. And because they were so good at spending all of their time bickering about things that weren't in the Bible, Jesus comes in and He curses them and He takes away their religious power and their religious authority, and he hands it to his disciples, who his disciples become the foundation of the church, the apostles and prophets, the foundation of the church. These, this ragtag band of men that are following Jesus are going to become the leaders of the movement of Jesus, of the mission of Jesus. And so he's going to die, but he's going to teach them a few things in the week before he dies, and he's going to take the religious establishment down, and he's going to start the mission of Jesus in the church of Jesus Christ. And this is symbolic. So when he curses the fig tree, it's symbolic. Let's read this section. Now that we have a, a bit of an understanding, let's read from verse 18 and verse 19. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. 
and immediately the fig tree withered away. Matthew is not concerned with the chronology of the story. He's not giving us the exact timing of how the story transpired. In Mark, you see that this this section happens over two different days. Matthew's concern is simply to, to reveal the symbolism of it in its place. Verse 20 says, When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what is done to the fig tree, but also you will say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. He's challenging them to do big things and pray really bold prayers. After all, they're going to have the weight of the mission of Jesus on their shoulders. And he wants them to do bold things and pray bold prayers. But he, but he curses this, this, this figless fig tree. I have a beautiful tree in our front yard. It's called a flowering pear. You have one of those? Flowering pear? Some, somebody came up with the idea of the flowering pear. Good things about the flowering pear. It flowers fragrantly in the spring. It really does. It just bursts into white blossoms and just it just washes a beautiful fragrance over our front yard. It's a very nice tree. And it grows fast. And it, it leaps out beautifully. The leaves are very beautiful on a flowering pear. And they grow real easily around here. You see them everywhere. And, they're, and they lose their leaves really late in the fall. They color. They're not a brilliant, spectacular color, but there's a, there's a kind of a beautiful color to them. And they hang right on into November. But you will never eat a pear off of that tree. Why do they call it a flowering pear if it doesn't have any pears? Why don't they just call it a flowering if it doesn't have any pears? You know what they say? 85% of the unbelievers in America know a Christian, but only 15% of them know a Christian who they think is different than them. Isn't that interesting? 85% of Americans know a Christian, but when they're asked, only 15% of those people say they know a Christian who really has fruit in their life. And Jesus is hungry for fruit. Jesus, he's looking for fruit. Jesus is looking for evidence that we have the life of God in us. Jesus is hungry, looking up into the branches of our lives to see if we regularly seek forgiveness when we sin. Jesus is looking up into the branches of our lives, hungry for fruit of converts, people that are influenced towards Jesus Christ. Jesus is looking up into the branches of our life, and he's looking for people who really pray. This is so clear. Jesus cleanses the temple, and he says, this was supposed to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of a cave for robbers. And people from all nations were supposed to be able to come here and pray. And then in this text, when he's teaching his disciples, it's like he says it again, whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. He says, if you're going to be my disciple, you, gotta, you can't ignore that I'm saying, I'm expecting the fruit of prayer in your life. In the New Testament, there's some interesting things about, about fruit. Let me give you a quick Bible survey of fruit in the New Testament. Okay, Character is fruit in the New Testament. Character is called fruit in the New Testament. Like in the passage there in Galatians 5, that's the fruit of the Spirit. And so this is what Jesus is looking up into the branches of your life for. Is there any love there? Is there any joy there? Is there any peace there? Is there any patience there? Are these things true about you? Is there purity in your life? It's character. It's the fragrance of character in your life. 
He's looking for that. Don't misunderstand. He doesn't want us to try to produce that. That'd be like going to a a store and buying plastic fruit and going back and tying it on the tree. Fruit is Jesus produces it because we're close to Him and we're vitally connected to Him and we've received Him and we love Him and we live in Him and then fruit happens and the fruit of character happens. The New Testament says character is fruit. Conduct is fruit. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10 talks about that. He expects certain behavior of you. That's fruit. Converts to, to stay with the seas there. And this isn't necessarily that you go out and you do everything to bring somebody to faith in Christ and then you're the midwife when they're born. But you're influencing people toward Christ conscientiously, thinking about that every day. This is the desire of Jesus for all of His disciples, that they would be on this mission every day. You're not working right if you're not working that way. You're not, you're not hitting on all eight cylinders if you're an eight-cylinder Christian. You're not hitting on all eight cylinders if you don't care about the mission of Christ and you don't think about nudging people toward the Lord. A person who is a follower of Jesus Christ has the fruit of converts or moves people toward Christian conversion. This is true. Here's another example. It's interesting in the Bible. I like this. In Hebrews 13 and verse 15 it says, the fruit of our lips giving praise. This is just what we're called to do. You know, we're a peculiar people, right? We're an unusual, unique people. Caught out of darkness into his marvelous light to proclaim his praises. That's what, so that's fruit. Proclaiming the praises of God. I mean, sure, when you come here and you hear a song like we heard our choir sing today, I noticed I was counting 11 instruments today. 11 instruments and hundreds of voices. He's so worthy of that. May it someday be 30 instruments and hundreds. Of, that's because I'm not the music guy. It's easy for me to say, right? Tons of instruments and hundreds and hundreds of voices all the way to the back row from the, to the front row because he deserves that, doesn't he? He deserves that. People ought to praise Him for all He's done for them. People ought to praise Him. That's fruits. It should happen in this building, but it should happen outside the building too. And then gifts. The Bible talks about gifts being fruit. Giving to the Lord. Jesus challenges us to have fruit. Do you have fruit? Is fruit in evidence in your life? Christ-like character, spiritual influence, fruit of your lips, spiritual impact. Jim Lytle is coming next Sunday. I won't preach. He'll preach all day. He's going to be speaking in the ABF hour, in the, in the adult uh, Bible fellowship hour. And he's going to be speaking in the morning service. And they'll be participating in the evening service as well with the ordination of Tim Walker. But one of the reasons he's coming is because he's been a missionary. And, and now he's uh, vice president uh, uh, provost out in uh, Baptist Bible College in, in um, Clark Summit. He's a, he's a Christian leader and he's going, to be, he's going to be here to speak to us. And one of the things he's going to help us to do is to understand why we're rearranging all the furniture around here. Some of you have been coming to me with questions like, why are we rearranging the furniture? I like that couch to play the where, it, where it was. You move it and I don't know what's there and I trip over that. Why are we rearranging the furniture? Why are we making bold changes in our church? Why are we doing that? Why are we, why are we eager to do that? Well, because our job is to fulfill the mission that Jesus Christ called us to do. So we're inviting... 
uh, Jim to come and talk to us a little bit about what that looks like. And he, he understands doing that in a missionary context, like in other nations. So he's a little keen that he recognizes that in America today, we've got to start looking at ourselves like missionaries in America. If these pews are going to be full, and if we're going to be able to send more missionaries overseas, it will only be because the God's people decided to pray bold prayers and do bold things and join Jesus Christ on his mission. We've got to try some different things in order to reach people. We shouldn't be intimidated about that. We shouldn't be shy about that. This is what Jesus called us to do. That's why we're calling us the Simple Church. To focus our church on the mission of Jesus. That's why we're going to be starting a whole bunch of different grow groups. And in those grow groups, there's going to be kind of quiet. There's going to be the fun, the funnest part of the grow group is going to be that when you're in a grow group, a part of that, every time you meet every week in your grow group, a part of that is going to be plotting missional things. What am I going to do for God? It might be buying a baby seat for somebody. It might be inviting somebody to church. It might be taking a tea ring over on Thanksgiving Eve to the neighbors just to show them that you love them. It might be a, a creative way to give the gospel. It might be something really profound and really amazing, like your group may go to a mission field. But listen, Jesus, I knew he knew that it would be intimidating for us to join him on his mission. We're like, we can get killed doing this. It means we have to change things to do this. I would rather sit in a pew and have somebody talk to me about the mission of Jesus than go and do the mission of Jesus, right? Hudson Taylor didn't go to church on Sunday night. Did you know that? Hudson Taylor was a great missionary leader, did not go to church on Sunday night. I'm kind of hoping you show up tonight because I'm going to teach through Colossians and very excited about it. I hope it's, hope it's useful for you. Hudson Taylor didn't go to church. He was a great pioneer missionary leader who didn't go to church on Sunday night. I remember reading that in a book as a kid thinking, Dad, did you read this book before you gave it to me? Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Read it as a boy. And I remember that Hudson Taylor decided that he was going to go to China and he was going to be put into all kinds of different hardship because of the mission of Jesus. Oh, you want to keep listening in case you skip Sunday night. Don't get too pious yet because this is going to get a little ugly here. He decides that he's going to put himself through hardship. So what he does is he has enough money to buy more expensive things to eat, but he decides to live on oatmeal because he wants to know that when he goes to China he can make it on a, in a, on a, in, on a difficult diet. And he moves to the roughest part of London, a place where there's a drain that goes through, and it's like open sewage that comes through this drain. And his place is cheap because it's right beside the drain, so he dubs it Drainside. He lives at Drainside. And he says this, I attended to public worship on Sunday morning, but I didn't allow myself the luxury of returning again because I spent all afternoon and all evening visiting among the poor in the slums who were dying without Jesus Christ. And I'm just boldly telling you that it would be a good idea for us to have less meetings and more obedience to the mission of Jesus Christ. And I'm not shy about that. More obedience to the mission of Christ and less just talking about the mission of Christ. More invited. You hear about a pastor that went to the Pacific Garden Mission because he wanted a tour of the Pacific Garden Mission. And so he goes to this, this famous Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. You been there? I've been there. And he goes in, and as he's getting ready to go in the door, he's like, I'm here for the tour. But a guy is going out the door 
really fast, like he's on a mission. He's coming out the door, and he has a wad of tracks in his hand, and he just says to the guy, we can tour the mission later. we got something to do right now. And he just stuffs a whole bunch of tracks in the guy's pocket, and he drags him down to the train station. On the way, he says, there are train loads of young soldiers and train loads of young sailors that are coming through Chicago right now. And some of them may never come back to America alive, and we've got to go tell them about Jesus Christ right now. It's not time for a tour of a mission. It's time to do the mission. And I'm just saying as a pastor, our church needs to get on the mission of Jesus Christ in a way like we've never done it before. I will boldly call you to that. This is what Jesus said that we're supposed to do. To bold, to pray bold prayers and do bold things. We won't lose that much if it doesn't come off beautifully. Because we'll be doing something. You might say, well, I don't know. That just sounds so difficult. You rearrange the furniture. You change things that I like. You don't wear a tie. I mean, a lot of bad things. Listen, Jesus says to his disciples, if you go and you give a cup of cold water in my name, I will reward you in eternity. Could you do that? Could you do that? When we start missional teams, and we'll explain all how this works, but when we launch our missional teams, our little missional efforts, it can be as simple as saying, who needs a cup of cold water around here? Who is there who needs a cup of cold water? Who is there who needs a winter coat? Who is there that could use a cup of coffee and a listening ear? Who could use their dog walked for Jesus? There's a lady on my street. Any day of the week, I know if I stop by her house, she'll talk to me for an hour. Because she's just a widow. And she hurts. And she's alone. She's not like my house. My house is just full of crazies every day. There's always conversation. There's always something crazy going on. It's a party every day. Not her house. Her garage is perfectly neat. You could eat off the floor. Everything about her life is perfect, except she's alone. The mission of Jesus might just mean you walk down the street. You just sit on a porch with somebody. You talk to them. I'm so excited about this that, as you can see, I could talk about it a lot. But Jesus challenges his disciples to ask for great things. William Carey, First Baptist missionary, And a pioneer missionary that started the whole missionary movement back in the late 1700s was a cobbler without formal training. He taught himself the original languages of the Bible. He taught himself Latin. I don't know why, but he did. And why God would do something like that. He made himself a globe of the world out of old shoe leather. He began to pray about that. And even though he had a very, very difficult marriage, a very troubled wife, he went to India, spent over 40 years in India. He was famous for a message that he preached called Attempt Great Things for God and Expect Great Things from God. This is what Jesus is saying to all of his disciples right there. He's saying, if you, I'm going to ask you to pray bold prayers and believe me for bold good things. That's what he's saying to us today too. That's what he said here. And then, of course, his authority was challenged. We talked about this last week. They asked him a question, so he asked them a question, and he connected his authority with the same authority that John the Baptist had. He said to them, in this challenge to his authority, he says to them, where do you think John the Baptist got his authority? And they didn't want to say it wasn't from God because he had a popularity about him. Jesus is saying, I got my authority from the same place John the Baptist got his authority. They were silenced. He silenced his critics. But the question that comes to my heart and should come to your heart today is really like a series of questions about, is the stuff that you're doing with your life going to last and are you vitally connected to Jesus? What are you doing that's going to last longer than life? Years ago, we used to drive into the South Bend area, and my mom would always say, you see that house? That's the house my daddy built. You see that house? That's the house my daddy built. 
What are you going to build with your life that's going to last forever? What are you going to do with your life that's going to matter forever? Jesus wants us to do things with our life that are going to matter forever. I could talk a long time about this, but I remember when I was a boy, my dad started church. Uh, my dad and my mom and some other people, the, Charlie Davis was a builder. It was always good if you're going to start a church to have a builder. Um, a guy whose name was John Shue, and he did have a brother named Jim. Jim Shue. And um, it's true. And there was a guy named Doug Boffman. He's married to a woman named Alice, Doug and Alice. He worked over at Copeland Products in Sydney. He drove by the house real early in the morning when I was out throwing papers. He'd drive by. He'd beep at me. His wife would sing in church every once in a while. Alice. She, uh, she had a particular song I remember really well because every time she sang it, my mom just cried like a baby. It, the, the name of the song was called No Fruit for the Master, Nothing But Leaves. No Fruit for the Master, See How He Grieves. That was the name of the song. And my mom would cry. And she would ask her to sing it again. I'm like, Mom, why do you have her sing it again? Because if you have her sing it again, it's going to make you cry. And the question that I have for Evangel today is, does a lack of fruit in your life make you cry? Do you care if Jesus is hungry? Now, Heavenly Father, I pray you work among the people today and that you'd stir us to join you on your mission in a fresh way. That the unbelievers that know us would know there's a difference in our life because of the fruit of God in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would do with each person here now what needs to be done. Some are not, they don't have fruit in their life because they don't have life. They're not born again. They're not children of God. Of course they don't have fruit in their life because they're not, they don't have a union with Jesus. And I pray for each one that, that's here that doesn't, hasn't yet put their faith and trust in Christ alone, become a Christian. And then for those of us who, who know better, that we would abound in fruitfulness for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.